This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. We came up with the direct access program uh, in, in Atlanta. Uh, not Direct access has been going on around the country, but we again, went to the, let's create a process that takes it out of the doctor's hands and let's see how we can reduce barriers. And one of the biggest barriers in Atlanta was patients did not want to come into an office visit who were healthy and 50 and say, Hey, listen, I'm healthy and 50. I need a colonoscopy. So we created a questionnaire that patients fill out online. It's 20 yes, no questions. And if they meet criteria, they automatically get scheduled for a colonoscopy. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologics, the only GI-specific group purchasing organization in the United States. I'm your host, Fred Rosenberg. Today, I'm pleased to have as our guest, Dr. Mark Sonnenschein from Atlanta Gastroenterology Associates in Georgia, a division of United Digestive. Atlanta Gastro has been an innovator in finding new tools to broaden their patient outreach. I'm excited to speak with Mark about his practices program developed to improve patient engagement around colorectal cancer screening. Dr. Sonnenshine received his medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia and was at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland for his internship and residency. He returned to Georgia for his GI fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta, while also earning an MBA from the University of Georgia. Currently, he serves as chairman of medicine at Northside Hospital. His special interests include inflammatory bowel disease and prevention of gastrointestinal malignancy through cost-effective screening. Mark has been a leader in thinking about new ways to use technology to enhance patient and practice efficiency, increase engagement with patients, resulting in improved outcomes and population health. In spite of living in Atlanta, Mark is a huge Dodgers fan. Dr. Sonnenschein, welcome to Gastro Broadcast, and congratulations on the Dodgers 2020 World Series win. Thank you, Fred. I appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to a uh, Dodgers win in 2021. How about that? Well, I, you know, I hope my, my Cleveland Indians, or whatever their new name will be, will be in the World Series with you. We hope so as well. It sounds like an easy victory to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your practice and the community it serves. Sure. So Atlanta Gastroenterology has been around for 40 plus years and we serve the Atlanta metro area. And over the time, uh, we have grown throughout the state. So we're now in Savannah. We are in the mountains. We are in Athens, Georgia, where which is the home of the University of Georgia. Uh, so we cover a large swath of Georgia. Uh, and we also extend a little bit up into the North Carolina mountains. So we are a pretty large practice. We have 40 plus offices and 15 plus endoscopy centers. Uh, What I'm most proud about is that we are in 30 plus hospitals. So there's very few hospitals that we don't service in the city of Atlanta. Frankly, the only hospital we don't service is uh, Emory Hospital just because it's a university and the inner city Grady Hospital. And that's just because uh, they have their own physicians in house. Tell us about your career path. Did you always see yourself in private practice in gastroenterology? I think I did. You know, I, I grew up here in Atlanta. It's it's funny. I, the hospital I work in is actually where I was born. Uh, Northside Hospital is the largest 
baby hospital in the world. So I'm sorry, in, in the state. So the uh, highest volume of babies are delivered at Northside Hospital uh, compared to the rest of the country. And I get to work at the same hospital I was born at, which is pretty neat for me. There are not many physicians at the hospital who, who do that. Uh, and so in high school, I actually worked with one of the large internal medicine practices here and developed a great relationship with some of the doctors. And so I always envisioned myself going into internal medicine and working in that practice. And when I was in training, I just sort of fell in love with gastroenterology. I liked the ability to take care of patients and have sort of a long-standing relationship. So that's sort of where my passion for inflammatory bowel disease comes with. I have, you know, to date, I have some patients who I've now taken care of for 10 years, and I suspect as my career goes on, I'll get to take care of them longer. But I also like the doing procedures, the the hands on, uh, on time. I was never a surgeon where I wanted to cut and be done. So procedures allows me to still use my hands, enjoy that, and then the other half of the time have long-standing relationships. And it's been pretty neat to watch, you know, patients who have had children and I've helped manage their inflammatory bowel disease while they've had children um, and taking care of, uh, you know, some some adults, taking care of their children uh, and being in your community where you were born. It's, it's been pretty neat. I've taken care of some of my teachers uh, and that's just so rewarding for me. I, I think that's a path that, that most of us have, have uh, followed as well falling in love with internal medicine and then finding a niche to just kind of flourish in. Absolutely. The pandemic has caused us all to rely on new resources to connect to our patients. I think most of us have been pleasantly surprised by how quickly our patients and our offices have, have adapted to the constraints uh, the pandemic has forced upon us. What changes has your practice made during the pandemic? Yeah, so during the pandemic, you know, the first thing that we did, obviously, is telehealth. And frankly, everybody had telehealth. Uh, I used to say, uh, you know, before we we were doing telehealth as frequently as we are now, medicine is so far behind the times when it comes to how we deliver care. But yet the technology within medicine is fantastic, right? You're able to, there are surgeons who used to do all these heart valve replacements. And now we have cardiologists who are replacing valves through people's groins. And yet we still have patients who show up and they have to fill out three pages of paperwork and wait hours to see us as opposed to, you know, now telehealth in my practice is, is common. Uh, I see patients, anytime someone needs an add-on or is having a problem, I see them at lunch, I see them afterwards. Uh, I used to do procedures and then go home. Now I do procedures and I do four telehealth visits because they're so easy to be done and they're good for patients. They're good for uh, quality of care. They're good for management of chronic disease processes. Uh, I, I'm interested to see when we look back in two or three years as to how frequently are we still are we still doing telehealth uh, and what what has that meant? You know, I think payers are concerned that we're going to be driving up costs. And I think the opposite is going to happen. I think we're going to find that we're going to be able to drive down costs because we're going to have less ER visits because patients are going to be able to get in to see us more quickly uh, and more efficiently. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's, um, it takes a lot of the stress away from you as you're running your day. If you're running behind and you have a telehealth visit, you just tell the nurse to call the patient and say he's running behind. And patients tell me they'd much rather wait for us in their living room than in our waiting room. So it, it just takes stress away from them and from us. And the other thing I found amazing is that, you know, the 70, 80 and 85 year olds can navigate the internet, you know, better than me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, they're used to do it. You know, they're used to talking to their grandchildren on FaceTime and, 
Right. And it, it, it's not that challenging. I mean, everyone banks online, right? And so why can't you do your healthcare? I mean, I think the real thing is so many people, and I'll tell you, this is scary. I've had patients who've wanted to do it from their car. I've had patients who've done it from work. And I've had to say, hey, th- we got to take this still seriously. I mean, I think that that is one of the downfalls is that it's not a conversation. We still have to be as professional and take it, it be as serious. Um, and I think getting the patients to realize that has been a little bit of a challenge for me. I've had to sort of set the tone at the beginning so that we do deliver the care that we want to deliver. Mm-hmm. I've heard you speak about a program that Atlanta Gastro has um, to try and identify patients with hepatitis C who may come to the office for an entirely different problem. Um, is that something your practice is still doing? And can you tell us about it? <laughs> so, yeah, a few years ago when I guess it's been longer than a few years ago, probably five years ago when the CDC came out and said that everyone over a certain age needed to be screened for hepatitis C. Uh, One of the things that sort of struck me is that doctors think that they're good at sort of doing the routine guidelines or following the routine guidelines. And the fact is, is that when we have 15 minutes with the patient, the patient's going to dictate at least the first half of that encounter uh, just based on why they're at the visit. And then there can be so many different other things that we want to accomplish in the visit that the routine sometimes gets missed. So we created a questionnaire that medical assistants, at the, before patients ever got back to their room, would have patients fill out. It was a simple 10 questions, and it essentially you know, walked patients through whether they should be screened for hepatitis C. And if the questionnaire led them to a yes, the MA did a point of care hepatitis C screening. And when I, after I saw the patient and walked out, I was able to give the patient the results. And if it was positive, my MA would come in and let me know it was positive. And then we would get them set up for the appropriate confirmatory blood work. And though there are limitations for point of care testing, the majority of our patients were now being, who, who needed to be screened for hepatitis C were appropriately screened and we were able to document. So there was a huge uptick in uh, patient compliance because it was being done upfront, it was by an MA, it was not taken care of by a doctor. Uh, And we actually found, we found in one year close to 60 patients, which maybe we would have found, but typically if you're coming in for a routine screening for colon cancer or coming in for a reflux visit, it's it's unlikely you're gonna send them to the lab for a hepatitis C screening and you just sort of defer to the primary. This was a way it was standardized and it was taken out of the doctor's hands. And I find that that is the most effective way for us to uh, roll out screening programs for patients, which is doctor led, but doctor not responsible. Uh, And I find that it's super effective. Uh, Especially for an illness that's now 95 to 99% curable. Absolutely. So that's 60 patients that you've really done a great service for. That's right. And it and it ended up being cost effective for us. I mean, the point of care testing is super inexpensive. So uh, it sort of it, it fit for what everything we're trying to do when we do, you know, see patients. March is colorectal cancer awareness month. And like many of us, you've been a champion for increased screening. Why is it important to be screened for colorectal cancer? Listen, colon cancer is super preventable. Uh, listen, we're not going to prevent every colon cancer, but we can prevent a, a large percentage of them by an effective screening program. Uh, and so really it is our job to reduce barriers to screening. Uh, we came up with the direct access program uh, in, in Atlanta. Uh, not Direct access has been going on around the country, but we 
again, went to the, let's create a process that takes it out of the doctor's hands and let's see how we can reduce barriers. And one of the biggest barriers in Atlanta was patients did not want to come into an office visit who were healthy and 50 and say, hey, listen, I'm healthy and 50. I need a colonoscopy. So we created a questionnaire that patients fill out online. It's 20 yes, no questions. And if they meet criteria, they automatically get scheduled for a colonoscopy. Uh, we have standardized our prep. We've standardized the process uh, by which patients are contacted. And so we have been able to really drive up our volume of screening colonoscopies for people uh, who maybe otherwise would not have come in, right? The healthy 50-year-old doesn't realize that they need to be screened, and yet we're able to prevent this slow-growing cancer if they just have the necessary colonoscopy. And then what I found is once you do it with a husband, then the wife does it, then the family members do it. And so, you know, we've created this website, screen4coloncancer.com, which patients go on, they can pick their doctor, they can answer their questions. And then they, once they've had the colonoscopy, they're able to share the website with friends, families. So after every one of my patients who does it, what we call direct access, I hand them one of the cards and I say, give it to a friend or family member who hasn't been screened. It's good for me. I'm getting to take care of patients. It's good for the patient. It's good for the system because they're not sitting in our lobby waiting there. It's, you know, there's no pre-visit consultation, uh, it's quick and easy. And that's frankly one of the benefits for stool testing is that it's quick and easy. It just happens that stool testing is not as good as a colonoscopy right now. How, how do you market your direct access website? Do you do social media or just in the office? Or but We take it to all our primary cares. We have uh, our own social media that pushes it out. But I'm super passionate about getting it up on Facebook and doing targeted for when you turn 50, it should be rolling on your banner on the side. We use social media. We use typical press. So in uh, print media, we just will do, instead of doing our practice website, we will do the screen for colon cancer website. Uh, and on the website, it's, you're able to find a location that's closest to you. Uh, and so that has been helpful. Uh, and then all of our primary cares, our OBGYNs, they all know the website as well now. How many years have you had the program in place? I think about five years, uh, Fred. It's been very successful. One of the things we learned is pushing them to the website wasn't always effective, that we would lose them. So we have the questionnaire where if someone, we we offer to them, if they call in and they'd rather do it on their phone or on their iPad or on the you know their laptop, they can. Otherwise, we just walk them through the questions uh, by our nurse or whoever picks it up so they don't come in uh, to the office just to save time. So do most of your new screening patients now come through the the website? Yeah, I would say it probably 90% of my routine screening colonoscopy or surveillance comes through either the website or the questionnaire by which they don't go to the website, but someone fills it out themselves. Yeah. I mean, my, my volume, I think last year I did, I don't say because it was a COVID year, I did a, a little under 1500 procedures. And I think someone told me about a thousand of mine were direct access. Uh, so a large percent for me wow. is, is direct access. And most of these are patients new to your practice? New to the practice, uh, or they're just returned patients who had a tubular adenoma five years ago, and it's time for their surveillance. And so the questions, not only are they the questions to prevent uh, people who I've never met before, but they also to make sure that nothing has changed in their history over the five years. Uh, some of my partners had created 
sort of an Excel spreadsheet recall system, but they just got called back and showed up. And so they never really had an update and plenty of people, you know, 60, 65, they've had a stint, something has come up. And so we have uh, in our questionnaire, it, it accounts for all of those variables. For groups out there that might be interested in implementing a, a direct access colonoscopy program, what ideas and suggestions would you have for a practice? Well, listen, I think really what you're doing is automating your visit. And for someone who, you know, for a routine screening colonoscopy, at least when I'm seeing patients in the office, the questions are very simple. And so for for me, we created this questionnaire. Uh, it's very easy to be done. I think practices just need to find someone to own the, the, the sort of objective, the mission, and then implement it and create a process. I mean, nurses, we have actually medical assistants who do this. Uh, and you don't even need a medical assistant. You can have an untrained, you know, uh, just someone who answers the phone and asks these questions to patients or get the website out. So it, it's actually very simple. And, and most practices have some form, I think, of direct access. It's whether you automate it and create a website. Um, are, are there any other innovations you have uh, in the lab uh, that are cooking, you're developing that you can share with us? Yeah. <sighs> You know, I don't keep anything private. Uh, you know, I don't have anything right now that I'm I'm overly pushing. Um, I, I like I, I've tried to push our hepatitis C program, like we talked about, with the screening, uh, because some patients will show up just for screening for colon cancer, and they don't show up in the office. And so, our questionnaire for our hepatitis C has been in the office and not been in our endo centers. And mainly, we haven't sort of tried to combine them because I was con we've been concerned about flow through our endo centers. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't have anything else exciting right now. I've wanted to push direct access for screening for Barrett's, uh, for having primary care doctors, uh, send patients for upper endoscopies. And I've gotten a little squirmish, just, I, I think upper endoscopies will be overused and it won't be cost effective. And that's, I think that is not something we need. We don't, the tool of direct access is meant to save money and to do the right thing by patients. And my concern, if we went for the Barrett's is that we would be doing upper endoscopies on every patient who a primary care sends to us for reflux. And that isn't effective. And that's not, that's not good for the system. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing programs that many practices will find useful and adaptable in their communities. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.